It was said that the sun never set on the British Empire, for how could it, with an empire stretching all the way across the Atlantic and into the Americas to their colonies and strongholdings across much of Asia, Australasia, Africa and beyond. At one point in the late 19th century, one in five people on the Earth's surface was under Her Majesty Queen Victoria's rule. All of these achievements were made possible by one entity, the British Navy. It was this floating bastion of both war and trade that supported Britain's huge overseas empire. But more than that, it was the men within this great institution that made it all possible. If you were to ask an Englishman, or more specifically a West Country man, who the greatest sailor of the Elizabethan age was, the likely reply you would receive would be Sir Francis Drake. But what if I told you there is a more reclusive man, a contemporary of Drake who not only arguably knew more about his craft than Sir Francis, but who did more for his country and his navy? Sir John Hawkins was one of the most important men in all of British naval history. Not only was he a pioneer of English transatlantic voyages, his family's contributions to Elizabethan maritime successes and Britain's subsequent conquest of the world's oceans are hard-pressed to be surpassed by any other family in history. His father was the first Englishman to sail to Brazil and arrive back in an English harbour to tell the tale, even reportedly bringing a Brazilian tribal king back on the voyage, venturing with him all the way back to Henry VIII's court in the year 1531. Both Sir John Hawkins and his older brother William Hawkins first went to sea in expeditions alongside their father as mere boys, and their experiences would help shape the maritime world and the British Navy. They taught their younger cousin his trade in the ways of war and seagoing, a man who would immortalise himself in history. Sir Francis Drake would learn his way from these lesser-known relatives, acting as a licensed pirate within their fleets, not yet having earned his title as Vice Admiral of the Royal Navy, or as the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe. Hawkins would make reforms to the Royal Navy so far ahead of their time that those given charge of taking on the position of Treasurer of the Navy after his death would fail the task miserably. He would play a large part in not just shaping the Navy as an institution, but he redesigned their vessels, altered their purpose and the way in which they did battle, changed the design of both the upper and lower decks, alongside adapting men's quarters to increase hygiene. He adapted the design of sails, how many men would be aboard a ship, and even the construction of ships' hulls. The list goes on and on. Once he had risen the ranks from borderline pirates on the high seas to treasurer of the Royal Navy, he was the only member of the Navy board who had sailed outside of Europe, and his voyages had taught him all he needed to know. His tumultuous and extensive adventures had given him the blueprint, how to turn Britain's navy into the most powerful maritime force in all human history. His changes would be the most important reforms until the time of the famous diarist and naval administrator Samuel Pepys, Hawkins' third and most famous voyage was also the one that helped him ignite the true hatred between England and Spain, not only causing an increased distrust and dislike of the Spanish, but also an even larger schism between Catholic and Protestant. At these earlier points within the split of the faith, Catholics and Protestants often served alongside each other and would converse on their differences. The actions taken by Spaniards against Hawkins and San Juan de Luja in his third voyage would create yet more clear divides that never healed. It also prompted an uprising against Spanish shipping from West Country privateers and brought about a new era of direct assaults upon Spanish cities and treasure ships that would culminate with Hawkins' defence of the Spanish Armada. The grand list of achievements and tales associated with John Hawkins are countless, but yet his name stays shrouded and obscured when we in the 21st century speak of the achievements of England's maritime legends. The reason being, John Hawkins was not just traversing these oceans and battling the Spanish and Portuguese empires across the globe for the pure pleasure of it, although he certainly did enjoy it. No, John Hawkins was a businessman, 
and a licensed pirate, and his business is what gained him the unofficial title he holds today, the father of the English transatlantic slave trade. This is a story I had looked into and written about quite a while ago. I've only just got around to recording it. I will write part two when I find myself some more time. I'm trying to wrap up some loose ends before I potentially delve into a larger project. This will be a mainly audio-based history, with a few relevant maps and images appearing at relevant times. Thank you all for the support, and I hope you enjoy the story of Captain John Hawkins. Sir John Hawkins was born in the year 1532 to a well-to-do shipowner and merchant, William Hawkins, in the port city of Plymouth. His father served as a captain within Henry VIII's fleet. John Hawkins was born in what was the cradle of British overseas expansion, the West Country. Cornwall, Devon, Somerset and Dorset were the heart of this early maritime culture. Although England boasted many other coastal regions of importance, the five ports of the Eastern Channel, Hastings, New Romney, Hythe, Dover and Sandwich, or coastal towns in the North Sea ports like Great Yarmouth in Norfolk and Whitby in Yorkshire. Despite this though, the West Country holds a geographical advantage that would allow its maritime culture to flourish and establish the ability to produce great seamen at a rate exceeding all other port cities and regions within the Elizabethan period. The geographical advantages possessed by this westward peninsula and its surrounding areas are numerous. The West Country juts out into the Irish Sea like an extended limb. It faces north towards Wales and Scotland, and west towards Ireland, allowing access to the traditional sea routes towards the ancient cod banks off the coast of Iceland. It also looks south towards the French coast of Brittany and the Bay of Biscay, and onto the Iberian Peninsula. Likewise, ships from these ports could quickly use favourable winds to enter the English Channel and head towards the North Sea herring fisheries or fur traders in the Baltics. In other words, anywhere a British sailor wanted to voyage could be achieved with fair ease and good time when departing from the West Country. It is the geography of this area that made it such an important base for the infancy of British naval dominance. It is also what lent to the struggles that bred such capable and vicious seamen. The maritime people of the region held their own identity. Being at sea, whether as a fisherman, pirate or captain, created a unique identity, only moulded and shaped by the ocean's waves. They held their own values, language and martial laws. These calluses earned through experiences at sea calcified over their minds. This gave them an ability to rationalise and understand the grave consequences of individual actions actions that their land-dwelling neighbours had not ever had to realise. The decision during a voyage in the harsh Atlantic waves whether to take safe haven or find a safe sea route to your destination could cost hundreds of lives. And have no doubt, stories of death and disaster would be heard in every tavern and dock on the English coast. The West Country also holds its own unique identities, much like the Welsh or the Bretons in France and the Basques in Spain. Take the Cornish, for example, those who inhabit the furthest most tip of the Western Peninsula. They have their own language. Alongside that, their DNA and culture hails more from Celtic roots than from the Saxon invaders who crossed the channel from the continent in the 5th century, and whose DNA is found in a large percentage of the population in Central and Eastern England. To highlight the separation, you can look at the Prayer Book Rebellion of 1549. This was a decision by the Church of England to move ceremonies and the faith towards Protestantism and conduct ceremonies in English rather than Latin, although that is a slight oversimplification. The result was as expected. Catholic strongholds became enraged by this encroachment into their religion and way of life. But the place at the heart of the Prayer Book Rebellion was the West Country, Cornwall and Devon specifically. 
not just because the Catholic faith was strong in these areas, but also due to the fact that many in Cornwall could not even read English, only being familiar with their local tongue, giving them these new books to repurify their relationship with God in a language they could not understand was not well received. Unfortunately, Cornish is an almost extinct language now, with the word being almost dead by the 19th century. The last person to exclusively speak Cornish is believed to have been in the 17th century, although this is obviously impossible to verify. Dolly Pentreath, a fishwife born in 1693, is often referred to as the last fluent speaker of Cornish, although again, there are many claims of these fluent speakers surviving in different isolated pockets well after Dolly's death. Today, there are a few keeping the language alive, but there is a recent rise in Cornish speakers trying to ensure their native tongue does not die out altogether. All of these Celtic nations, as they are known, hold a connection. Brittany, Cornwall, Ireland, the Isle of Man, Scotland and Wales all share this cultural and genetic bond. When the Saxons migrated to England in the 5th centuries onwards, they pushed certain parts of the Celtic populations to Britain's extremities, or at least this is one of the theories. Many of these Celts in the West Country left for Brittany and France. In 1742, Captain Samuel Barrington took a voyage to Brittany alongside a Cornish sailor. After docking, he was amazed to see the sailor converse with an older Breton fisherman in this foreign tongue, the two seemingly understanding each other to a large extent and sharing tales amongst themselves as Barrington looked on. The West Country jutting out as it does, giving it a reason to be such a naval hub, is the same reason it was a common target for other maritime peoples. Vikings preyed on the monasteries of Cornwall, sacking them of their possessions and population. During the Hundred Years' War, mercenaries destroyed ships in Plymouth Harbour, pillaging and raiding as they went. French fleets burned Plymouth in 1377 and 1403 respectively. In 1595, the Spanish pillaged and burned Penzance, and a hundred years after that, attacked Tynmouth. This perpetual threat created a hardy breed of man. Strengthened by the constant raiding and understanding the cost of being the victim, they instead made themselves the perpetrator and became the terrors of the sea. Cornwall is riddled with small coves and hidden places of harbour, perfect for those looking to increase their coffers through raiding and theft. The 16th century ambassador dubbed the West Country men savages, and they had a reputation for being, quote, the most infamous for outrageous, common and daily piracies, end quote. When Sir Robert Cecil visited the West Country, he said, fouler ways, more desperate ways, nor more obstinate people did I never meet with. Later, West Country sailors were often referred to as guzzlers due to their love of Devonshire cream and Cornish pasties. The typical stereotype of a guzzling sailor in the 16th century would be resourceful, independent, untrusting of strangers, and ready for a fight. It is within this complex English West Country culture that John Hawkins was born, along with a vast percentage of the great maritime men of his age. Francis Drake, Richard Grenville, Walter Riley, Humphrey Gilbert and John Navis, explorer of the Northwest Passage, were all from Devon. This small spit of land in southwest England would be the birthplace of a maritime empire that would encompass the entire globe. An unlikely tale indeed. Now that I have given some brief context to the region from which John Hawkins hails, we are going to look at the three voyages that made Hawkins as famous as he is, and the reforms he made to the British Navy that helped ensure its dominance in the centuries to come. Hawkins gained his first experiences at sea as a boy. On the cusp of his teenage years, his father had broken into the trade monopoly that had been devised to divide the lands discovered by Columbus between the two great Catholic maritime powers, Portugal and Spain. 
William Hawkins would run goods from the Guinea coast, the 2,000 miles of West African coastline from the Senegal River to the mouth of the Niger, across the Atlantic and to Portuguese Brazil. It was these early English voyages in which John and his brother gained an understanding for the brutality and way of life on board a vessel for months at sea, with men deprived of their families, comforts and even assurance of survival. Men would go mad, plot mutinies and kill their own companions. John Hawkins had taken his first life before he left his teenage years, an insight into the man he would become, a man of action and even harsher reactions. Hawkins became engaged in a dispute with a barber in his hometown of Plymouth and killed the man with a blade, managing to gain an official pardon through his family connections, and the justification that Hawkins was acting in self-defence corroborated through numerous witnesses. After gaining his experience through his voyages with his father, Hawkins was set to embark on his own great adventures across the world's oceans. Hawkins would take his first strides into official life by managing a shipping company with his older brother William. He would also reportedly be involved in diplomatic duties, having played a role in shipping arrangements surrounding the marriage of Mary I to the King of Spain, Philip II. John Hawkins would even refer to the King of Spain as his old master. The complications within the church and people's faith is an extremely difficult one to discern. While some devotees would martyr themselves for their faith and give up their lives for their brand of the Christian religion, some were much more easygoing, gliding with an unpredictable tide carried them. It is also difficult to attain how much interest certain pockets of the population really had in the divide, or understanding the intricacies that it involved. Instead, things often just seem to regress to tribal splits and alliances, the easy concept of good versus evil being a prominent part of the propaganda on both sides. But alas, by the year 1559, John would dissolve his partnership with his brother, and look to take his first major steps in his great plan to rise the ranks of British society and their wealthy elite. John Hawkins and these early Plymouth sailors blurred the lines between piracy and privateering. John Hawkins and his brother had both been arrested as younger men for committing such acts, raiding and robbing ships off the Bristol coast. As was a common excuse during the period, the men claimed they were French possessions that they had seized, and since England and France found themselves at war, it was a permissible and justifiable action, with good motives towards the Queen and country, they said. These seaborne adventurers did not so much base their actions on laws, but more on likelihood of success and chance of consequence. They were experts at working within the margins of law and greasing palms when it was needed. They seemed to work on the basis of prove it. In the year 1562, Hawkins would embark on his first major voyage. He had first learned of the lucrative slave trade during his regular visits to the Canary Islands off the West African coast, where some of his major Spanish trading partners were located. In the month of October, in the year 1562, Hawkins sailed from Plymouth to Tenerife, meeting with his trading partners and taking on board a pilot who was well experienced with the Guinea coast and the Indies. Before leaving, Hawkins had made sure to gain assurances from those who pulled the levers of power. He had a group of wealthy merchants who had invested into the voyage with large promises of wealth and vast financial returns. This group included the treasurer of Her Majesty's Navy, Benjamin Gonson. Hawkins' plan had the potential to make some very important people wealthy, but everyone involved knew it was a risk. The Spanish did not trade or even allow English ships into their ports in the Indies without the direct license of the king. No goods were even allowed to be traded to foreigners from any of these recently established port towns. Tensions between England and Spain were high, and some worried this would be the provocation needed to make things worse. 
The Spanish and Portuguese did not take kindly to any other nation attempting to slip their foot within the door of Atlantic and Pacific trade. John Hawkins would not slip his foot in, but kick the door off its hinges, inviting Englishmen for the coming centuries to challenge this new Spanish and Portuguese economic system and showing them how it could be done. From Tenerife, Hawkins would head to the coast of Guinea with his three ships, totaling 260 tons and a crew of 100 men. Not wanting to overcrew his ships, knowing the toll disease would take on a crowded and overpopulated ship, policies he would later enforce in the Royal Navy. En route to and around Guinea, John Hawkins did what he did best, exerted his will. He would raid and or trade with up to half a dozen Portuguese slaving and merchant vessels, taking on board clothes, wax, ivory and nearly 400 slaves. He would then send one of these ships on its journey home, filled with goods from the African coast and the Canaries. Francis Drake was in fact on board this vessel, having now completed his first voyage to the Canary Islands. Hawkins would then sail to the Indies, arriving in early April 1563, six months after his departure from Plymouth. Selling his captured slaves to the planters in the island of Hispaniola, where Columbus had arrived 70 years earlier. Here he sold the unfortunate cargo to their new masters. Nearly half of the slaves aboard the ship were dead before they arrived in the Indies. Nonetheless, after some small quarrels with Spanish officials who had heard of Hawkins' trading intentions, and having been given orders by the Crown to arrest anyone involved, they instead took the bribes and discounts that were offered to them. Hawkins had purposefully chosen three ports in which his trading partners back in the Canary Islands had informed him would be amenable to these illegal privateers, the ports of Isabella, Porta de Plata and Monte Cristi. These three were also chosen due to the fact that they were poorly provided for by official shipping, and therefore the opportunity to buy massively reduced slaves and produce from these West Country privateers was too good of an offer to pass up. Hawkins did everything he could to placate the Spanish. He appealed to the traditional alliance between the two nations, spoke of the benefits to all achieved through opening their trade links, and even sent two ships back to Seville so that he could pay customs duties like a Spanish merchant might. Although he may have been simply attempting to avoid giving up the loot altogether, due to his lack of space on board his other vessels. The Spanish instead seized all his assets once they arrived in Spain and arrested the men. Whether Hawkins was attempting to achieve his trade through good relations with the Spanish, they were not interested, viewing his incursions and piracy as illegal. From this point forth, if the decision hadn't already been made, John Hawkins would trade with these Spanish colonies whether their officials and overlords back in Spain permitted it or not. The island colonies, desperate for European goods, were more than interested in these trades, alongside the obvious opportunity to buy slaves to work their plantations at a hugely discounted price. If the Spanish sought to stop Hawkins, they would first have to catch him. Hawkins would return home overloaded with wealth, hiring two extra ships to transport loot back across the Atlantic. He arrived home in August 1563, ten months after departing from Plymouth. His ships laden with gold, silver, pearls, sugar and animal hides. The return for the initial investors was even greater than could have ever been imagined and made many men very wealthy. The voyage did no good for Anglo-Spanish relations, however. Hawkins would convince his more powerful backers to seek recompense for the confiscation of their goods by the Spanish authorities, the goods he had obtained illegally. The Spanish were not impressed by these actions and viewed this as a Protestant probing voyage to test the waters for colonies in the New World. The Spanish knew this trade could not be permitted or encouraged, and sent orders out to their holdings across the Atlantic. No Spaniard was to trade with the heretic Juan Hakins. However, 
John Hawkins's reputation would only grow from here. Whether the Spanish permitted it or not, the English had now been introduced to the wealth that this newly discovered transatlantic trade could produce. Hawkins had built on his father's pioneering of this English triangular trade routes between Guinea and Portuguese Brazil, extending the triangle's size and adding a new commodity to the list of goods, African slaves. The Spanish would never again have the freedom they had exerted in the previous years. Soon the English, French and their neighbours would be trying to establish their own footholds in the new world. In the year 1564, just over a year after arriving back in England from his first voyage, John Hawkins had already planned his next, this time with more money and more support from his wealthy benefactors. He would even gain the Queen's investments along with a list of privy councillors to help fund the voyage. Hawkins was even allowed to charter one of the largest boats in the Navy, the 700-ton Jesus of Lubeck, purchased by Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII. This ship alone almost tripled the tonnage of Hawkins's first fleet. He would also take three of his own ships. In total, the fleet now had a combined tonnage of 920. What Hawkins was still yet to discover is that Elizabeth had invested on the cheap. Although the Jesus was large and useful, it handled poorly, was cumbersome, clumsy, leaking, and frankly unseaworthy. The second voyage was similar to the first. Hawkins would head first to the Canary Isles, then the Guinea coast, more specifically Sierra Leone. Here, through a combination of trades and raids with the Portuguese, Hawkins acquired 400 African slaves without any casualties to his own force. He would then lose seven men while seeking out gold on the Guinea coast. Gold is an ancient resource of Africa that has been used as a currency for trade going back thousands of years. West Africa was the hub of gold mining and discovery before the gold mines in the New World gained their slave population. It is estimated to have produced up to 50% of the gold found in the Old World. The Akan people in modern Ghana would pan for and mine gold, then sell it to northern Barber tribes in exchange for slaves and other goods. The glimmer of gold has, and seemingly always will, hold power over men. Hawkins would then leave the African coast on the 29th of January and arrive in Venezuela on the 3rd of April 1565, and then on to Rio de la Hacha in modern-day Colombia. Hawkins noted a clear difference in the readiness to trade. Clearly, the reputation that the English privateer Juan Jaquins had gained already preceded him. Although after losing some cannon shots and a show of force, he managed to persuade the colonists to open their minds. He offloaded 300 slaves, wine, flour, biscuit, linen, cloth, and ready-made clothes. Hawkins was paid for his cargo in gold and silver nuggets alongside worked precious metals. He would then intend to head towards Hispaniola, Instead, strong sea currents and winds carrying him west of Jamaica and he failed to land at Havana, instead reaching Florida in July. It is within these voyages from South America to Florida that accounts happen that leave your mind confused and yet amazed at how this strange life in the West Indies must have operated. Some islands flourished with cattle that had been brought over half a century earlier, the population of the island growing fat off a diet of milk, steak, fruit and vegetables slaughtering additional cattle simply to harvest the hides and the tongues. John Spark, a prominent merchant who accompanied the voyage, tells tales of fields of rotting beef carcasses, only tongues and hides removed. Alongside these, the tales of complications within this strange world of illicit trade and religious and nationalistic divides. For example, on the next island they would reach, these inhabitants would recognise that Hawkins' guide was a native and they tried to deny him the ability to even leave the island with his captain, calling him a traitor and other such insults. 
Other ports would have already learned of Hawkins' presence in the region and denied him access to even dock. At another island, Hawkins would meet the French pirate Jean Bouton and his fleet, who as Hawkins was feigning a retreat from the island to try and entice the colonists to realise they did in fact want his goods, Hawkins saw the fleet of Bonton sailing towards them. They conversed briefly at sea, exchanged pleasantries, and then both went on their ways. The world before the large-scale power that the Royal Navy held was a strange one. Pirates and those acting within legal means were almost one and the same. It was a wild west in a world that was still attempting to grasp and regulate this vast expanse of sea, islands, and continents. Men at sea had laws and rules unto themselves. Bontemps would eventually die while trying to raid a Spanish town. He would take a crossbow bolt to the neck, and his head was eventually parted from his shoulders and taken to Santa Domingo to act as a warning to other pirates of the dangers of challenging the Spanish Empire. Another strange tale is that of the Spanish captive Hawkins had on board, who he had freed in African Guinea. Not much is known of the reasons surrounding this, aside from accounts from those who chronicled the voyage. The man is believed to have been betrayed by trading partners and sold into slavery on the Guinea coast of Africa. Hawkins took this Jamaican inhabitant called Lorena back towards their home on the island of Jamaica as he had promised, but after failing to recognise the coastline they had inhabited twice and missing the opportunity to take on board more pelts and water, Hawkins, frustrated, instead headed for Florida. In Florida he would find the other purpose of his visit, the French colony at Fort Caroline. As mentioned earlier, many nations could see the clear opportunities for trade and wealth. Many knew that the country that could break the Spanish-Portuguese trade monopoly might take their place atop the world. Although the English had paid lip service to Philip about wanting to aid each other and the lack of ambition that England had in this new world, Hawkins nevertheless paid a visit to this French destination. Hawkins offered the men safe passage home, an offer they all refused, but he did sell them a ship, shoes, beans and meal. Hawkins would sail home shortly after, stopping at the cod banks of Newfoundland to restock on food, buying cod from two French fishing vessels, clearly confused by his payment for the goods as opposed to him taking them by force. Just a week after Hawkins left Florida, a Spanish fleet would arrive and destroy the French fort, killing and capturing all its inhabitants. Hawkins had missed them by a cat's whisker. The second voyage was again a wondrous success, with another huge return for the initial investors, higher than could be achieved through any other means of trade. Hawkins is often credited with being the first Englishman to bring tobacco to England from the second voyage, although undoubtedly French sailors had already introduced a new crop to their homelands, and likely England. John Sparks would write in his account of the voyage stories of their interactions with natives, some of which may hold truth, some of which likewise were fictions created to amaze the audience back home. They were clamouring to read accounts and tales from these great voyages. He writes a famous and early account of natives smoking tobacco, which is believed to be true. Quote, The Floridians, when they travel here, have a kind of herbs dried, which with a cane and an earthen cup in the end, with fire, and the dried herbs put together, do suck through the cane and the smoke thereof which smoke satisfieth their hunger and they lie four or five days without meat or drink, end quote. Maybe the first account of tobacco ever being smoked. On his return, Elizabeth would grant Hawkins a coat of arms, the crest, a black-skinned figure bound in cord, a direct reference to his slaving activities. Hawkins would integrate into even higher echelons of society after these successes and would gain only more support and friends of importance. Accounts describe Hawkins as having courtesy, charm, and a diplomatic finesse. 
Although he was a terror and a pain to the Spanish, Hawkins held good relations with many Spanish ambassadors and had gained a reputation even from the Spanish monarch Philip II, who had taken a keen interest in English life and politics since he was King of England from 1554 to 1558 after marrying Mary I, or Bloody Mary, daughter of Henry VIII. Throughout his life, Hawkins even seemed to have acted as a double agent on behalf of the crown, trying to gain knowledge from the Spanish and show he held sympathies for their Catholic cause. He was a man of many faces and skills, but despite certain accounts, by this time, Hawkins seemed to be a fierce loyalist to the Queen, and an even fiercer Protestant. Queen Elizabeth even reported stating, quote, God's death, this fool went out a soldier and has come home a divine, end quote. After reading one of Hawkins' letters to Lord Bewley, one of Hawkins' Spanish competitors is reported as saying of Hawkins and his persuasive abilities and way of being that, quote, No one talking to him hath any power to deny him anything that he doth request, nor through any villainy, but because of his great nobility, end quote. By August 1566, nine months after arriving back in England, Hawkins was preparing for his third and most infamous of his voyages. It was a delicate matter. The English crown needed to maintain a facade of non-aggression with Spain, while still understanding that if they were to gain the wealth and power they desired for themselves, their nation and their cause, the West Indies and the New World was where they would find it, or sell it at least. Hawkins had signed a bond promising to not again trade in the West Indies, a formal request from the Spanish ambassador. He would prepare four of his own ships, and after delaying his voyage to appease the crown and Spain, would organise his force at Plymouth by spring. His fleet would comprise the Jesus, alongside another addition from Elizabeth, the Minion, an even older 300-ton vessel built in 1536. Alongside these ships, he would have four of his own, at a combined 333 tons, alongside a crew of over 400 men. This third voyage had almost doubled in size from the second, and by the start of August, were massed in the deep-sea anchorage at Plymouth. The third voyage, more official and more well-stocked than any of the others, seemed to have a dark cloud lingering over it from the beginning. Before they even departed port, an armed Spanish squadron came into Plymouth Harbour due to bad weather. They were reportedly heading to Spain to escort Philip II to his holdings in Netherlands. Hawkins, suspicious of the Flemish admiral, speculated that they were there to spy and delay his trip. As they went by Hawkins's fleet, they failed to dip their colours, an act that was required when foreign ships encountered British vessels passing the English channels, although the tradition varied over the years. Effectively, they needed to dip their flags. Hawkins fired a shot across their bows in order to get the Admiral to comply. The Admiral did so, but then even asked Hawkins if he could dock in the harbour alongside his vessels. Hawkins refused him any berths in Plymouth and sent him on his way. Alongside this negative omen and suspicious activity, Hawkins' Portuguese pilots disappeared while he was preparing his fleet from London. Then, while in Plymouth, a lady bystander would be crushed and killed when a heavy piece of rigging broke free and landed on her. Things were not going as smoothly as Hawkins had hoped. Nonetheless, he would depart with his fleet from Plymouth in October 1567, and with the loss of his two Portuguese pilots, men who had claimed to know of the mythical golden cities in the African jungle, he was now free of this burdensome intrigue that had become the talk of society, and he resumed his true intentions. What he knew would guarantee a return on investment, a valuable commodity in every nation since the start of time. Slaves. The expedition was met with immediate bad winds and strong weather that separated the fleet. On regrouping at the Canaries and heading to Guinea, the luck of the expedition did not improve. 
The Jesus now had a seam opened up within her hull that looked to sink her. Fifteen sheets of thick baize cloth jammed into the gaps was enough to remedy the issue for now. Hawkins would then have a disagreement with a sailor within his crew, Edmund Dudley. Dudley would slash Hawkins across the face with his sword, almost taking Hawkins' eye. The days in which an English sailor would not dare challenge the authority of his captain on pain of death were still far in the future. This was still the Wild West. When the fleet did reach the African coast, they failed to capture the intended bounty. They shadowed the coastline looking for settlements to raid, or Portuguese ships they might rob. Hawkins had no problem robbing the Portuguese. It was the Spanish that he was more wary of. Oftentimes, from accounts, it seems Hawkins would almost always lead with trade when encountering other seafaring nations, but if they refused his requests, it seems he would then move up a graduated ladder of severe reactions, ending with theft. These situations and occurrences are truly odd to the modern mind, though, much like many of these actions and these tales. For example, sometimes Hawkins would force others to trade with them, even if they had intended targets for their cargo and awaiting customers, but he would not rob them but give them a fair price and issue receipts that he would himself take as proof, often getting signatures and seals from his counterparts on his paperwork. Again, Hawkins lived within these odd margins of maritime life, and he was not alone. These rules seemed almost universal, and these actions are littered through early English, Portuguese, and Spanish accounts. When looking at Hawkins' accounts, he happily dealt with some Spanish merchants and went on his way whereas in the Spaniards' accounts, an English privateer gave them little choice. Within this world, though, it is hard to trust either side, because sometimes both would be lying. Spaniards would lie of being forced to give up their goods, so that when they arrived in port, they had valid excuses and a man to blame, plus a pocket full of gold that they might take without dividing between their investors as honestly as maybe they should. It is much the same in the accounts from settlers. For example, after one of Hawkins' voyages, he met with the Spanish ambassador, Guzman de Silva, to talk about his trips to the Caribbean. Hawkins insisted he had a license from Queen Elizabeth and acted within her instructions at all times. He offered to show the license given from the local governors in the West Indies as well. Also, he showed testimonial letters of his good behaviour. But Silva already had accounts of Hawkins storming a village and forcing the governors to do business with him. And this is where the strange maritime laws and weird world of shaping the truth extends. Hawkins was either lying to the ambassador and had in fact stormed the settlements, acting without honour, or as the ambassador suspected, it was both parties lying. Speaking of Hawkins, Silver wrote, quote, He had a private discussion with the governor, and they agreed between them the next day he, Hawkins, would put men ashore and they would make a show of entering the place and causing damage. Then the governor would march out, and so that Hawkins would not damage the place, he would do trade. End quote. These lines are blurry and confusing, but quite often it was a simple calculation. People wanted to better themselves and survive in a large new world, and if trading would do that, then trade they would. Only sometimes would loyalties and religion come above wealth, depending on the nature of the individual. Hawkins was still off the Guinea coast and would lose some seven more men to poison darts while trying to capture natives. He would himself take a poisoned arrow while in a boat rowing up the Guinea River systems to seek natives to enslave, apparently only surviving due to the remedy given to rub on the wounds, cloves of garlic. After these failures, Hawkins made an adaptation to his strategy. 
He went ashore after being beckoned by tribesmen onto a beach and allied himself with a chieftain of a tribe that had reportedly been suppressed by his stronger neighbours. They devised a deal. Hawkins would help eliminate this foe, and in return, he would get his pick of the inhabitants of these enemy tribes. With these promises, they made their pact. And so, 120 men went ashore with these new companions and were guided to this enemy tribe in the jungle. It was a large, strongly defended town with fortifications and, according to accounts, 8,000 inhabitants. The English and their allies attempted to overrun the fortifications, but in the process, eight men died and 40 were injured with no success to the attackers. And so it was that even by Elizabethan standards, the grotesque horror played out. Hawkins brought cannons on shore from his boats and launched a full frontal attack on the settlement, burning the town and capturing those who did not manage to escape in the commotion. Hawkins took 400 slaves in total and his tribal partner an equal or higher number. Although reportedly the potential slave numbers were reduced by the wholesale massacre carried out by Hawkins's allies, receiving less than half the slaves he was promised, the natives were more interested in removing their rivals from this earth than capturing them, some even supposedly starting to remove their enemies' limbs and roast them on fires after the battle. On the 3rd or 7th of February, it isn't clear, Hawkins would leave the Guinea coast, just over four months after leaving Plymouth. Their fleet consisted of nine ships now, the six original ships, the Jesus of Lubeck, the Minion, the William and John, named after the Hawkins brothers, the Swallow, the Judith and the Angel. Hawkins had also acquired a caravel at Cabo Blanco and two more French ships added near Cape Verde, whose young captains were intrigued by the adventurous Hawkins. Upon reaching the Spanish main, the Caribbean coast of South America, he found officials were even less reluctant to trade than his last trip. Sales in the Barbados went well, but at Rio Cheta, he had to land 100 men ashore and use a cannon to intimidate the governor into allowing him to set up an impromptu slave market on the beach, with English soldiers bringing the unfortunate slaves ashore as Spaniards inspected their potential purchases and then haggled under the Caribbean sun. He then went on to Santa Marta, where the local governor would not even allow them to land or take on food or water. Hawkins, although he had offloaded a large amount of his cargo now, was short on supplies and his ships were not handling the climate well. He had been attempting to make his way back across the Atlantic, but the hurricane season had caught him and he had been battling strong winds for three days before he was forced into making the decision to head towards the Gulf of Mexico in order to save his ships. Hawkins ordered his men to hang out three lanterns, the signal for the other vessels to bear away from the wind and run with it. He would stop trying to fight the storm and head towards it. All ships followed except one, missing the signal and continuing on into the night. The last of the ships to heed Hawkins' order was the Judith, a 50-ton vessel commanded by a young square-jawed and compact man who had experience above his years, Francis Drake. For two more days they battled the storm as they were pushed further into the Gulf of Mexico, two of their ships almost blown over by the hurricane-force winds. Jesus' carpenters were working day and night, the ship was still taking on water and men were pumping it back out at all times. The gap in the Jesus' hole was so large that fish were reportedly swimming through the gaps. Hawkins would spot two sails on the horizon and dispatch two fast-moving oared vessels to catch them. The Spanish captain on board one of the vessels gave instructions to find the closest port to make repairs and restock. The port was San Juan de Luja, 15 miles from the capital of Veracruz and four days sailing away. 
The captain also warned Hawkins that San Juan was where the annual Spanish treasure fleet from Seville would arrive to claim the bullion from the New World. The treasure fleet was the most well-armed and funded force on the seas at this time. Even with his bullion on board and the risks posed, Hawkins had no choice. It was go to San Juan or sink. On September 15th, Hawkins' crew would spot land. San Juan was not a large port, with just a few small huts housing their Spanish garrison. It was chosen by the gold fleet due to the lack of any other deep harbours along the entire coast. Also, the low-lying island acted as a windbreak for ships on the opposite side in the harbour. Ships once in harbour, though, seemed protected by even the worst storms, with huge iron rings dug into the shoreline to moor these huge vessels to. Hawkins had no choice but to seek safe harbour. He could not clearly make out how many ships were in the inlet, and knew he would most likely not receive a warm welcome. So he devised a cunning plan. His ships would take down their English flags of identification, and instead, the Jesus and the Minion would fly the royal standard of the Queen's coat of arms, a less obvious insignia, but still giving room to deny any accusations of deceit by the Spanish port authorities. If he could get his ships into harbour and get men onto land, there was little the Spanish force could do to stop him. As he got closer, he noticed two new features of the harbour, one being a gun battery nestled between two fortifications pointing out to sea, another was a hulk moored in the harbour, a once ocean-going 700-ton carack, now stripped of its masts and resting in the ocean as a hulk, effectively a large storage vessel. Hawkins had given orders for crossbowmen to be sent to the sturdy platforms at the top of the masts and had his guns cleared for action. As they drifted into the harbour, Hawkins's men had their pikes at the ready and bonks mounted. The only noise above the waves was Hawkins offering commands to his helmsman, who gripped the long rod that turned the rudder. The ship's wheel would not be invented for another century and a half. As they got closer to the harbour, Hawkins saw activity within the gun battery, and he recalled the prayer he spoke with his men every day, as he had done this very morning. They would recite the Psalms of David, our father, and the creed in the English word, then offering Hawkins a standard and daily prayer. Serve God daily, love one another, preserve your victuals, beware of fire, and keep good company. As they drifted past the gun battery, smoke filled the air with a large eruption and a huge bang. Hawkins ducked his head. After looking up and in the process of giving the order to return fire, when he noticed the unbelievable. The guns were not shooting at him, but offering salute. They had mistaken him for the treasure fleet due later this month. His plan had worked. 